This is the Visions and Tones podcast with Dr. T. So welcome to the Visions and Tones podcast. Today I'm talking to a powerhouse, Dr. Chris Marsh, um, who is in the United States of America. Dr. Chris Marsh received her PhD from the University of Southern Carolina in 2005. She was a postdoctoral scholar at the Carolina Population Center at the University of North Carolina before joining the faculty of Maryland, where she has been tenured since 2014. Her general, her general areas of expertise are the black middle class, demography, racial residential segregation, and education. She has combined these interests to develop a research agenda that is divided into two broad areas, avenues into black middle class and consequences of being in the black middle class. Uh, she re recently released her book um, titled The Love Jones Cohort, Living Single, Sorry, living and single and living alone in the black middle class. Sorry about that. And it was published by uh, the Cambridge University Press. We are going to be discussing this book today. But she also teaches research methods, critical race theory, racial uh, residential segregation and intersectionality. And she has been a visiting scholar at the University of Southern Carolina, uh, the University of Verdwaterstrand in Johannesburg and the University of Johannesburg, both those in South Africa. Dr. Marsh has served as a contributor to Black entertainment television, known as BET, uh, Bloomberg, CNN in America, MSNBC, the Associated Press, NBC, Washington, and Al Jazeera America. And is also frequently asked to contribute to the Washington Post. She served as the Secretary of the District of Columbia Sociological Society and um, the Managing Editor of Issues in Race and Society. Dr. Marsh was awarded the Jacqueline uh, Johnson Jackson Early Career Award from the Association of Black Sociologists in 2015 and received her Coral Fulbright U.S. Scholar Award for 2017. Dr. Marsh was elected chair of the uh, section on race, gender, and class of the American uh, Sociological Association in 2019. Since late 2015, she has, been, she has been the driving force behind the implicit bias training with various police departments in the state of Maryland and uh, was appointed to the Prince George County Police Reform Task Force in 2020 and was the chair of the subcommittee on recruiting, hiring, training, promotions, or evaluations, human resources, uh, and the mental health. Dr. Marsh also served on the President's University of Maryland Task Force on Community Policing. And she also served on the Board of Directors for Habitant of Humanity, Metro Maryland, and Baltimore Regional Housing Partnership. That prof is amazing. Wow. <laughs> you have been working. <laughs> I have been busy. Um, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. That was so kind of you. Oh, it's a pleasure, Prof. And happy Black History Month. Thank you. Thank you so much. Right. I've been going through your book, Prof, and I'm mm -hmm. loving it, I should say, which we're now going to jump into your book. That's a good thing. Glad now, you're enjoying it. I am. I definitely am. One of the things that maybe this is, this could be part of giving the flowers. I have been struggling to sort of understand society. And I'm not sure whether this is happening in the States or this is also happening around the white, you know, the white folks. But within the Black community, one of the things that I've been sort of grappling with is understanding how one can be too much on your face when it comes to, you know, just life in general. 
Tony is born. You have to go to college. Well, you have to go to school. You have to go to college or uni, find a job. And all of a sudden, Tony, why are you single? You got to get a partner. Then Tony gets a partner. Then there's a question also, when are you having your first child? You get a first child. Few months or years down the line, the child is bored. The child needs a, a friend. When are you getting another child? They grow up. Which school are they going to? Which uni are they going to? At 20, they're still in your house, kick them out. But when you look at that, it's almost as if Tony lived his life the whole time trying to please society or trying to please people. Now, when I got into your book, I was so excited to see that you actually, for me, trying to address some of the things, especially in the context of relationships. You're writing about, you know, uh, single life, living alone, the black middle class. And that is very much impressive for me. What motivated you, Prof, to jump into this book and dedicate yourself to a seven-year project, you know, to bring such golden work? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think what motivated me is that young, early on in my academic career, there's two things that really motivated me. I realized that there were a lot of scholars that did not look like me. I identify as Black American. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of scholars that did not look like me. In fact, they were white and they spent their entire career talking about the social ills and the negative aspects of being a poor black person. And I did not want to write that kind of scholarship. I did not want to be that kind of scholar. I wanted to look at people who had, quote unquote, done everything right. They went to college, they got the big degrees, they got the big houses, they got the big incomes, but there still were issues about race because racism still exists. Even when you are middle class, you can't buy yourself out of your race. Mm -hmm. So I always knew I wanted to do work on the black middle class, even though it's a smaller share of the black population in the U.S. and globally. I still thought it was a very important conversation. Now, I also realized as I was early on in my academic career, I realized that media had a pretty good handle on acknowledging people that were single, weren't married, didn't have any children, but the social science literature still hadn't done that. And because the social science literature still hadn't done that, I was like, well, now it's time for me to make a contribution to the literature and make sure that we do talk about these people that are single and living alone. And they're just as important as people that are married. Right. And and I love the fact that you want to address something on literature, but there's something that I, I kept on hearing you saying in different platforms. You're talking about not pimping the Black population as that being part of your core belief. Do you mind sharing with us what that means? Yeah. So like I said, there's people that don't look like me who actually, and I say it and I'm intentional about it, they pimp the poor. They make their entire careers write these really great books about the black, uh, the black poor. And most times or a lot of times they don't look like me. And because they don't look like me, they actually become a better, they're thought of as a better expert or a more reliable expert because they're on the outside looking in. I'm like, I'm a part of this group. I want to do thoughtful work with this group. I want to be sensitive to this group. So I am very emphatic about making sure that I do work that is thoughtful, considerate, and it's not as an outsider looking in. That's really important to me. So I will not pimp the poor. I have not, and I will not, because I don't want to make my academic career that way. Mm-hmm. I just, mm-hmm. I don't. Would, would you say though, within the entire you know, academia, something should be done to sort of help the black middle class? Because there's, there's that question about ethics and as to whether if one is engaging the poor and you want to give them incentives, it might sort of jeopardize the quality and the validity of your work. Is there a way around that? 
Yes. So I think that there, it's twofold, right? So some people are just trying to make their careers and you can write a lot of, a lot of articles and books about poor black Americans and poor blacks globally. Yeah. But what are you doing with the research? Is it simply to pad your CV or your resume or are you doing thoughtful research that can then speak back to the community and you bring that information and that data back to the community and you have interventions and stuff like that? Or is it simply just to get another line on your resume? And I would argue that for some scholars, when you're not really connected to the community, it really is just to get another line on your resume. Right, right. And that's not the kind of scholarship that I want to do. All right. That's amazing, Prof. Um, the book, the title of the Love Jones cohort, I was thinking... Who exactly would you say was your target audience? Now, here is Tony, who is not American. I'm South African, living in Australia. I've got no clue in terms of who the Love Jones cohorts are. I had to sort of do a little bit of a search. But what really grabbed my attention was single and living alone in the Black middle class. So so who do you say your target audience was? And also, can can Prof maybe share a little bit who the Love Jones cohorts are so that those who are outside of the States can have a better understanding? Right. So my target audience is everybody. Right. (laughs) You don't have to be American. You don't have to be middle class and you don't have to be single. Here's what's interesting about the title single. All of us have held the title single at one point in time. Mm -hmm. Yes. I may not. I may not know what it's like to be South African. You may not know what it's like to be American. I may not know what it's like to be a man, and you may not know what it's like to be a woman. A white person may not know what it's like to be white, and a black person may not know what it's like like to be a white person. But we have all held the title of single, so we should, everybody should read the book. Because even if you're not single now and you're married, you can think about how to navigate your, how you navigated your single life and or how to navigate your single friends. If you're returning back to singlehood, you want to read because you were married, but now you're divorced, widowed or separated. You want to read the book because you know that you're not alone. There's other people that are out here that are single. If you're black, you want to read the book. If you're white, you want to read the book. I insert myself in the conversation at singlehood at the black on ramp. But there's a singlehood is happening across the globe. And it's not just exclusive to black Americans or blacks globally. So everybody really should read the book and glean something from it. Because I think it's important to understand once you get married, you're still an individual. Yeah. Yeah. You're married, but you still are an individual. And it's important to kind of think like how are individuals thinking through like some of these life decisions. And so it's a great book for everybody. You don't have to be black, middle class or single or yeah. in America. But, but do you have any age group? I don't have an age group per se. Um, in the book, I interview people that were 25 to 64, I believe. Yeah. Now, I appreciate that age range. One, because I what I've heard from a lot of younger scholars, younger students say to me, like undergraduate students, they're like, Dr. Marsh, thank you. You um, have given us a different narrative as opposed to get married, get a degree, buy a house, give, get, have a husband. You know, you've given us a different conversation and yeah. they appreciate that. Older folks are like, thank you. I now know how to like think about aging and making some later later life decisions. And the book was helpful. So the book can really help anybody along the way. Right, right. Um, now, like I said earlier on, seven years is quite a great number of years. I'm not sure whether that's actually precisely seven years. Or I'm, I'm, oh, yes. I'm all fish a little bit, yeah. Yes, no, uh, so, 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 so that's that's quite a whole lot of years. And, and 
part of the sample that you had was about 70 plus, but you ended up with 62, if I'm not mistaken. What I yes. like is the fact that you also included men in, in the conversation. Um, um, how did men come about to be part of part of part of the study, Prof? So we recruited for people in, I live in the Washington, D.C. area. So we recruited people in this area and having recruited people in this area, um, we, we, we recruited, we had more women than men. We did. I think it was a wow. 73, I think we had 73 women out of the 62 people that we interviewed. So yeah. they dominated the categories. That means we had a little under 20 men, mm-hmm. but I thought it was important to have the conversation for both men and women, because there are men that are single. People think that this is just a black woman phenomenon and it's not, right. there are men that are in the category. So I didn't want to lose the men, the voice of the men. I have thought about writing a trade book and I could just write a book about women, but for right now I have men in the book and I'm glad that I did because there were like some subtle gender differences that came up um, for the people that did want to be partnered or, or married. The men were just of the mindset that it would eventually happen and the women were hopeful that it would happen. Mm-hmm. Had I have not included, included men in the conversation, I wouldn't have been able to have that conversation, but luckily I included men so I could have that conversation. Right. And so yeah. I'm really happy that I included men. Yeah. And and what I like also in terms of the findings is that you address something about singlehood not being sort of uh, put next to or parallel to promiscuity. Um, um, right. Right. Can, can, can Prof speak to us about it? Because I'm thinking, I'm, I'm pretty sure you might have gotten a bit of a pushback as to how possible is that? Um, and also the fact that, you know, many people hold the view that men are the most promiscuous compared to women. Perhaps that could be the reason why that is not coming out. Do you think that could be the case? Right. So, you know, it's really interesting because I wrote of the book and I actually had 75 respondents, but I had to exclude several people because, you know, we'll be 45 minutes, an hour and a half into the interview. And people would say, oh, well, I was married, but my oh, ex-husband no. considered dead to me. So I'm considered <laughs> never married. I was like, no. So that doesn't work like that. So uh-huh. no. But I really wanted people who had never been married yeah. versus ever married, turn, returning back to um, singlehood. So, they were, so, I, so people who were divorced, widowed, separated, do not show up in my data set. I really mm-hmm. wanted to focus on those that were only married, um, that, those that had never been married. So there was one person and another person said something about um, their children. And they said, well, you know, I have children, but I'm not going to, because estate planning is a big part of the book. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we're, we're, we're um, not going to leave any, I'm not going to leave anything to my children. So I don't have to worry about where I'm going to leave my assets. And I was like, but you have the option to decide where are you going to leave your mm-hmm. assets? I was like, that's a very different kind of conversation. Um, but wait, that was what was the question you were asking? Were you asking me about never marry? What were you asking me? I forgot now. <laughs> <laughs> I just <don't> remember. <laughs> I guess I was I was asking whether uh, the idea of promiscuity oh, not oh, sort of being parallel to yeah, right. So I had to I had seventy five people. I had to drop down to sixty two, and of those sixty two people. I think sex came up twice in a tangential kind of way. It was just kind of like in passing. Mm-hmm. So I actually called one of my colleagues who does work on this on this scholarship in this area. And I was like, should I even mention that sex didn't come up? Mm-hmm. And I grapple with that because to mention that sex didn't come up suggests that sex should have come up with singles. Right. right. To not mention it, um, people were said, oh, you just didn't even talk about sex. I'm like, no. 
it didn't come up. So I don't, I actually don't remember, but I believe I put it in a footnote and I said that it kind of only came up twice, but it's really important to me because people automatically assume because you're single that you're being promiscuous and you're having a lot of like just out here having free sex. And that just does not show up in my data. And Mm -hmm. people are so emphatic that the two must be related that they're like, well, you, maybe you didn't ask the right questions. Maybe you didn't, maybe they didn't feel comfortable talking to you. So you're challenging the methodology Mm -hmm. as opposed to challenging yourself and your thinking Mm -hmm. and the assumptions that you automatically make. You want to challenge Mm -hmm. me as a scholar. Okay. But at the end of the day, sex just really didn't come up. It wasn't a central thing that showed. It just didn't come up in conversation. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, for me, I I got that bit of a challenge as opposed to sort of having to challenge you, Prof, because I was thinking, well, there's so much sexual liberation today in the world, right? We're not just talking about promiscuity in that sense. But, you know, the, the, the modern times is showing us people using different sex toys, dildos, whatever, flashlights and so on and so forth. Um, um, I was sort of thinking more as to, as to whether those things are ever going to come out in the book and not, but I was, when I didn't see them, I was like, okay, this is actually really interesting. And, and I mean, as a researcher, sometimes I'm like, this is part of the work where we also have to open ourselves to be, you know, shocked a little bit about the work that right. we do than sort of driving our work to go in a direction that will be pleasing people. And right. so I love that. I love that about your work, Prof. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But didn't it, didn't it sort of, but wasn't it more of a shocker for you if, when you when you found that actually people are not really interested in talking about sex per se, but they can talk about it, just their living experiences? I'm not sure that it was much of a shock to me. Right. I'm you know, people have asked me since the book has come out, like what was like something that really just shocked me? Right. And caught me off guard. And I think that the sex wasn't one of them. I think one thing that kind of caught me off guard is like we're in 2013 or 2015 when I wrote the book. All right. And um, what did kind of, I think kind of caught me a little bit off guard is that men still kind of talked about how they were concerned about having like really close intimate relationship with other men because they're afraid that they could have been thought of as being gay yeah. or thought of as being soft. And I was like, are we still doing this in 2020, yeah. I mean, 2015 or 2023 by the time the book comes out? And so I think that was like, really? So the women talked about their, their romantic, non-romantic nurturing relationship and how beneficial it was to them or they were to them. And it really helped with their single lifestyle. But the men didn't really have that same kind of uh, narrative. And mm-hmm. so I do hope like after reading the book or this book would help to normalize non-romantic nurturing relationship with other men. Right, right. And and uh, I love the fact that there's such a great way, Prof, of destigmatizing singlehood. But at the same time, I could not sort of stop thinking about you as a woman writing this book, including men in there, but at the same time, looking at the American politics there's, I'm not sure if I could be right about my own observation, but this is sort of trend that if you write, if a black scholar writes something that is sort of a little bit out of the conventional or it's not sort of a conventional standard, you stand a chance to be harshly criticized by people. And when I was looking at your book and the content that comes out from your book, I was like, it's easy for people to think, okay, here's another feminist Marxist who probably hates God and hates family structure and hates men, particularly white men. How has the space been for you in the U.S. and the way people are receiving your work? Right. It's really funny that you say that, Tony, because I um, 
right in, I think it's in the preface at the very beginning of the book. I was like, I'm pro-marriage. I'm pro-love. I think all of that is great and wonderful. And as sure as my name was Chris Marsh, I get hate mail because people read the title of my book and they think like, oh, I'm sitting here saying, I don't need a man. Man, men can't, a man can't do nothing for me. That's <laughs> not what I'm saying in the book uh-huh. at all. So it's really disheartening when people like take the time to read the title yeah. and they go to the University of Maryland website, they scroll down to the M's, they scroll over to me, they make it, they write me a nasty gram email about how I'm bringing all of black America down and haven't even taken the time to read the book. If you would have put the same level of energy and effort into writing that email to read in the first paragraph, yeah. you would get a sense of trying to go with the book. True. And one of the things that I say in the book, and I'm very emphatic about this, and I don't care what other scholars say about this. I'd say that this is the politics of citation. I'm citing Black scholars that talk about Black family. And I know some white scholars probably don't take kindly to that. And I don't care. Mm-hmm. Period, full stop. I do not care. There has been so much work out there that's done done, done on us and not by us. In yeah. fact, Tony, when I was trying to write the book, I had to scroll to like the fifth, sixth page of resources or sources to find Black scholars that were talking about this because they don't show up in the first three or four pages. Wow. And I was like, I'm really going to be thoughtful about this. And it was risky. It was a risky decision, but I was willing to take it because if Cambridge decided they weren't going to publish the book, they could have said one of two things. The reviewers could have either said, this is not steeped in the canonical work. In other yeah. words, not talking about white people talking about black families. Mm-hmm. Or they could say, like, we clearly see what you're do- what you're trying to do there, Dr. Marsh, and we appreciate it. And we decided to publish it. I'm happy to say that Cambridge said that they saw they clearly saw what I was trying to do and they decided yeah. to publish it. But yeah. I was not willing to bend on that. I would rather I would have taken my book from Cambridge and would have published it someplace else because that was really important to me. Yeah, I think it's amazing work, Prof. I really commend you for that because I was like, I'm scared to do this in America. There's so much attacks. Every little thing that you do, you're, right. you're, you're bound to get attacked. And yeah, and you're going to be attacked. Ta- out be- of context, propaganda is also happening in the scholarship where you think, well, it took center space in the media. Right. And you're going to be attacked anyway, no matter what. Right. So it's like, well, at least write the book that you're proud of and you can stand by. Yeah. And and And, I mean, that's that's one of the one of the challenges that as researchers, we sometimes go through once we release a book or a paper, we haven't got any power as to how do other people receive it. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I the reviews are just starting to come in and the book is doing really, really well. Yeah. One of the things I say in the book or I demonstrate in the book I don't do a lot of interracial comparisons either. Because mm-hmm. when you do the interracial comparisons in the U.S., it's always like, you know, comparing blacks or another racial ethnic group to white. White becomes the reference. White becomes the norm. Yeah. There is no variation and variability in black America where I don't ever have to compare them to whites. Mm-hmm. So I'm really emphatic about that. I did co-author one of the chapters with the student, and we do a little bit of comparison there. Um, but that's just kind of like to make our kind of like late set out the argument. And in the very beginning, I also talk about um, compare blacks and whites to show that blacks have been uh, dominating the single singlehood yeah. because I kind of indict some of my singlehood scholars. I'm like, why is it that singlehood has a white face or a white gaze? Right. 
I was like, nope, I'm writing a book that I'm going to give flowers to Black singles, make sure that they are seen. And every single scholar that does work on singlehood, I'm like, well, what about the a race, a nuanced race conversation? Mm -hmm. Because people come at singlehood very differently. And we can't assume that we all have all these just like, where it's like, I'm just going to just take some time off. But I'm just, I don't want to get married. There's another conversation in Black America, like, are there viable options to marry? Right. And yeah. I talk about that in the book as well. Yeah. I love the theme about where you sort of discuss uh, structural or financial constraints. Can Prof sort of sort of unpack that for us? Right. So it's what I was just saying. One of the things that I think is really important for us to think about with a singlehood scholarship or think about singlehood in general, we cannot leave the conversation at the individual level and say, at the individual level and say, like, for example, oh, Chris Marsh or Dr. Marsh, you're single because blah. I'm like, yeah. okay. There's an individual conversation, but there's also a structural conversation. And yeah. I say it throughout the book, and I really stress this. We have to understand how structural forces constrain our personal choices. Structural forces constrain our personal choices. If I were to say that differently, I would say we have to understand how racism, racism constrains our personal choices. If I were to actually give you an example of that, let's just say I, Chris Marsh, want to marry another black heterosexual man that owns a PhD, has a PhD, owns his own home, makes 250000 U.S. dollars, and has estate planning. He's simply not there. Mm -hmm. So whether I now, at this point in time, choose to be single by choice or by force, we cannot overlook the larger context and understand that my dating, my dating pool is constrained period. Right. Yeah. And then in the constrained dating pool, I'm now, now then deciding to date or to not date. But I think what happens so often is that we're like, we look at the individual, like something must be wrong with you. You're not, your, your standards are too high. You are, you're, you're just a, a, a um, angry black woman, all those kind of tropes. No, there's mm -hmm. a structural conversation that needs to be had. And I will not allow, allow that conversation to be overlooked or short-sighted. Like it's very important to the larger conversation. Right, right. Just to sort of give a different perspective, Prof, what would your response be to one who would say, but part of literature on cohabitation, basically the point out that people would rather be together for the sake of, you know, addressing the issues of, you know, financial struggles and so on and so forth. Okay. So one of the things I talk about in the book too, is I talk about people that are single and living alone and I clarify in the book and I was and I'm doing a presentation earlier today. Mm. I'm saying that you're not living with your romantic partner, right? You could be in a living in a household with someone else. So in other words, you pulled your resources together and are living because it's expensive to live in certain places in the U.S. and certain places across the world. Yeah. So it's expensive. So you can have you can pull resources. The only thing is that you're not living with a romantic partner. So I often talk a lot about being married, but it also can be romantically involved. So you can be partners or marriages, as long as you're not in a romantic partnership and you're not in a romantic marriage, hmm. then you would show up as single in my data set. And it's funny because one of the respondents in the data set, I think is engaged. And I was doing a talk in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, they had asked me like, why are they engaged? And I was like, if you're, if just because you're engaged does not mean that it's going to equate to marriage. In fact, I was engaged. Thank uh... God I did not get married. And so people think that they're not in any type of relationship. You can be in a relationship. You're just not in the house with that person. Right. 
Oh, that's yeah. that's interesting. And and you share a little bit of your story about yourself and your sisters living together and and all that. <laughs> would you say would you say also that part of your story and your sisters also, also contributed in in the motivation of writing the book? Um, I would say, yeah, because like I was watching the the I was watching television, I was watching movies, and I could see this demographic shift in the black middle class away from married couples to young black professionals who weren't married and didn't have any children. But I just and I saw it on my street because when my sisters and I moved into our house or our home, there were three other people, two other people that bought houses and they were single. And I was like, how is it I see this in my everyday life? Yeah, but it's not showing up in the data. It's yeah. just not showing up in the scholarship. So I was like, okay, here's a gap. And I want to try to fill in this gap by bringing this this population to the conversation. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Prof, can you talk us through your theory? You are using intersectionality. And normally people would think, well, intersectionality is race, class, gender. But you are also including singleism. I, I'm not sure if that's actually what you coined it. Yes. Uh, can, can Prof no, I didn't coin it. Here. Somebody else did. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> so, you know, so it's funny because... Um, in its most basic kind of sense, okay? If you talk about, I'm a black woman, I identify as a black woman. Yeah. So if you talk about racism, we ignore the sexism that I have to feel. Yeah. If you talk about sexism, we ignore the racism that I have to feel. So I have to deal with. So intersectionality talks about how we can't, you can't disconnect one from the other. I'm a black woman and you have to understand me and acknowledge me as a black woman. Given what we know about some of the scholarship and how people that are single have been discriminated against and how systems are just not made for single people. Uh -huh. So we think about race, we think about class, we think about gender. I'm making the argument that you can't disconnect the fact that I'm a single black woman from the conversation. And that means something very different yeah. than a married black woman. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you can't disconnect them. So it's like, I can't choose my race. I can't, I don't, don't make me choose my race over my gender. Don't make me choose my gender over my race. Don't make me choose the fact that I'm single. You, There, there are multiple identities that are working at the same time. And if you're going to do thoughtful research, you need to study them in that context, study True. them all at the same time and understand how they shape or don't shape my dating choices and or my dating constraints. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I love how you bring the idea of single in itself to be a family, to be considered as a family. <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> so if we use the American definition of family, and I'm thinking of the Census Bureau, that's like the kind of like the gold standard for data in the US. Uh -huh. And they talk about family. And to be a family, it's someone that you're related to by blood marriage or adoption. Yeah. So since I'm single and living alone, I would not show up in the data set as a family. I would show up in the data set as a household, not as a family. Right. And I am arguing that I should be considered a family of one. And I want to want to go back to the argument that I made earlier. If you believe that structural forces have constrained my personal choices and I can't I, I have my my dating pool is constrained on who I could even date, and I don't have viable options, quote unquote. And if I don't have viable options, I'm not able to marry or I've chosen not to marry. But then there's advantages that come with being labeled as a family. So for you, for my, for if you buy the argument that my structural forces constrain my personal choices and I now have to be single, and then you don't give me the advantages that a married couple mm. has, 
highly problematic. Mm-hmm. And I'll talk about from the U.S. context, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be the same in other contexts as well. So I'm going to give a benign example. Yeah. So we have like family plans for cell phones. So like there's discounted discounted costs for like the more phones you have. It's only me in my house, and I want my discounted price on my one cell phone plan. I want the mm-hmm. family, the Marsh family plan for my cell phone. Going on vacation. If I go on vacation, I don't want to pay more as a single occupant versus a double occupant. And oftentimes you have to pay more as a single person. And then Mm -hmm. the one I think globally everybody can understand and wrap their mind around is the tax structure. There's a built-in penalty in the tax structure that advantages, often advantages married type of households and it disadvantages Um, people that are single and living alone. So there's a great book by Dorothy Brown. She comes out of the legal tradition. And the name of the book is The Whiteness of Wealth. And Dorothy Brown argues that we should all file our taxes as singles. If we can't all file our taxes as singles, we, I argue we should be able to file, I should be able to file my taxes as the Chris Marsh family and get the discount on my taxes because I am the Chris Marsh family. I do agree. <laughs> <laughs> I just need for policymakers to agree so we can change the definition. And you know, and you know, it's so funny because one of my colleagues called me. She read the book and she, for like two hours, I, in fact, I was packing to go to South Africa. Uh-huh. And we talked for really two hours while I was packing. And she praised me for the first hour and like 48 minutes. Wow. And she's like, Chris, I want to just have a quick question in the last 10 minutes. She's like, how dare you say that you want to be labeled as a family? You don't really want the label family. You just want the benefits that come with the family. And I was like, okay, yeah, I don't know that I'm really worried about the label all that much. I really am worried about the benefits, but I do think once you start unpacking the label, you can see where I'm trying to get to. So I don't want you to think like you have to change the label. I don't necessarily care. I do care that because I don't have the family title, there's certain advantages I'm not, I'm not privy to. I mean, I would care more about the benefits. I mean, people who are married, sometimes they also get their own benefits, right? For instance, in Australia, there's people that when you've got X number of children, you can get certain concessions with your tax and so on and so forth. Why shouldn't I get that? You know? Right. But how how right. has the response been, apart from your friend, how has the response been from the scholarship and just people in general about singlehood being considered as a family? Um, there's a little bit of pushback. Um, because I keep people keep saying you have to be related to someone. I was like, why? Right. Just because that's the way it was, that's like you're a traditionalist. And I don't know that I I I align with traditionalists. I was like, yeah, I am related to someone. I'm related to myself. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I get a little pushback there. One of the other arguments I make, I say, okay, if you don't buy my argument of a family of one, maybe you'll buy my argument of the augmented family, which is what I was talking about earlier, about people who are in non-romantic yeah. nurturing relationships and could live together, couldn't live together. But why can't they be institutionalized as a family? Yeah, especially if we start because I one of the chapters talks about like estate planning and thinks about how you're going to disseminate your wealth, whatever wealth it may possibly be. If you are single and you're not able and you are in this kind of non-romantic nurturing relationship, why can't you be institutionalized, legally recognized so that your assets can clearly transfer from you to the next person as opposed to having to go through all this other stuff? Let's just legalize these kind of these these formations and call them a family. Right. Right. In some ways, these these relationships might might be and are closer in connection and ties than we have with our quote unquote husbands or wives. Yeah, yeah. 
on 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 the point about state planning prof that you sort of speak about you know how people direct their belongings if ever anything is to happen it, it kind of made me think especially in the context of south africa now you've got a little bit of understanding of of, of south africa mm-hmm. and probably had a lot about the concept of uh black tax i was just yes. thinking whether does the state have does the united state have something like that where perhaps people might say well my belongings, I can give them to sort of my relatives or whatever that I feel like they're maybe way lower in terms of, you know, economic status. Right. So we have kind of like these 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 wills and living trusts you can put in to kind of stipulate where you want stuff to go, something will happen to you. But directly to your point about black tax, Mm -hmm. I do think that like I have a niece or a goddaughter. And so, you know, I am I'm paying sometimes helping pay with her to her tuition and so on and so forth. And thinking about the black tax in South Africa and even thinking about like the extended family in, in, in black America, why can't I get a tax write off on some of these? Why can't I have my right. need show yeah. up as a legal institution and get the benefits of that? We're very, we're very narrowly focused of what a family mm. is, but I definitely contribute to my goddaughter financially, emotionally, psychologically, sociologically. So I'm like, why can't I claim her on my taxes? Why can't we have some kind of developed family? And in fact, my goddaughter's um, father just passed away. So it's just her I'm and her to hear it. Yeah. Thank you. So why can't we develop a family? Why right. can't we be a family? Right. I mean, I mean that that gives the argument more strength, you know, I think, because I, I could be single, but at least what am I doing with my salary? that been put into consideration. So if the state is interested in my tax, how about you also look at, you know, whether am I not helping any nieces, cousins in my family, and then also that sort of helping me to constitute family, even though I'm living alone, but even though I didn't even adopt my sibling, my cousins and so on and so forth, but at least have a look at where my finances are going, you know? So I think, I think that gives a beautiful strength yeah. in terms of that yeah. argument i'd vote for it anytime <laughs> no, right. I just, no, i'm like i'm out here campaigning for it so we'll see what happens one day we'll see fingers are crossed so elia on as we were speaking about going to south africa i had someone on your program and you mentioned how you you got a bit of a pushback in south africa where they say don't bring all this westernized notions here Ooh, we yes. want people to be married and so on and so forth but I, I, I sort of couldn't hear much whether some of the single women in the States do mention remaining single because of fears of any violence or having any, you know, experiences in terms of violence and so on and so forth. Because that might be a reality. The, the, kind, of, the kind of support that some of the women in South Africa gave you to say, well, we do need to speak about also the high rate of violence in South Africa. So Dr. Marsh is going somewhere with his work. I think it was amazing. Can Prof right. maybe share on that? Yeah. Yeah. So I was on a radio show. I was in South Africa. I can't remember. I think it was, I know I was there in August. Yeah. And I was there earlier last year as well. And so um, we had talked about like this idea. Some guy came on. I was like, don't bring those westernized views here. <laughs> but I appreciate it because like, like I can engage in like willful ignorance. Like, okay, I'm just talking about what happens in the US. I don't know what happens here. But so many people were like, no. We absolutely need to talk of this, talk about this because of the high rate of gender-based violence and in intimate relationships yeah, that true. need to have this conversation. And across the board, there they, we see high degree of violence and in intimate partnerships. So because of that, you have to think about like, well, do I really want to be married? 
And we also want to be really careful because marriage can be a wonderful thing. But sometimes if you're just trying to get married, sometimes people can exploit you because they see that you want to be married and you might yeah. find your a relationship that's abusive, toxic, unfulfilling, or unrewarding simply because you don't want to hold the title of single, but the relationship's not good for you and you need not be in it. So I'm also trying to get us to think about like ways to just celebrate our singleness and be happy in our singleness and marriage happens great, but if it doesn't, you're still a whole person. That is true. And and what I love about what you said, Prof, I don't know if you saw Lesejo's commentation about your work. It came out somewhere else. I came across Lesejo plan, uh, Plank. Uh-huh. Um, yes, so yeah, we did a, we did a talk Gray. together yeah, at yeah, yeah. a university. I can't remember where it was now. But yes, university was, of South Africa should be. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And 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 I mean, she addresses something which I felt like this is amazing when she says you your work addresses uh, connotations such as lefito. Basically, lefito is a Sutu word, basically meaning you know the stigma that is placed against a woman who is left behind while others are getting married. That actually has a very negative, you know. Um, weight over a lot of women and they end up you know getting married to just anyone just anybody. because you know anybody just because you know uh i cannot be single everybody's making fun of me you know or it mm-hmm. could even be words such as inyumba she actually used uh, a zulu word inyumba basically meaning a childless woman there's a lot of stigma that is placed you know around women who are not in any relationships about that so Hearing that from Lesejo and knowing that here's a young South African woman excited about your work. And I felt like, look, you're not going to please everybody, but at least if there's some people who are happy with your work and you're doing tremendous contributions in helping and, you know, liberating some people, that's really amazing. And I wanted to thank you, Prof, for that. Yes, thank you. And it's really encouraging because I've gotten two compliments that I get that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. One, people say that they feel seen for the first time in a very long time. They feel seen. And that's important that they no longer feel invisible. And the other compliment I get is that they learn something. I don't care if you've been a sociologist for 50 years or you've been a sociologist, <laughs> you don't even know what sociology is. People have said they've learned something in the book. So being a professor uh, and a teacher, it's it's really impressive that people say that they learned something and they feel seen. We, that- we are pros. We are. <laughs> <laughs> we are. Learning about cohorts, the, the reason why you actually wanted the word cohorts to be there. You know, it's it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and and learning learning to ask people. I think I think for me this has been a golden thing. Being able to ask, what do you mean when they say you're single? Because I'm single and I'm living alone. And, and they're like, why are you single? I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, the person yeah. asking, what do you mean? Or or having yes. the chance to ask other married people, why why are you married? When you're asking me, why am I single? Right. So one of the things I say in the book to the listeners, I say that, you know, I try to give some advice. I'm like, people will often ask you, why are you single? And I, one, I say, we should get into a habit of asking married people, why are you married? We always ask single people, why are you single? But we don't ask married people, why are you married? We either need to ask everybody or nobody, but we're only asking single people. It suggests that something's wrong with single people. And that's not necessarily the case. But when people do ask you, why are you married? You know, you can you can fuss and cuss and go off on them if you want to. But it happens more often than not. And a very benign way to respond to them is to say, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And it forces them to think about the question that they're ask, a, actually asking you. True, true. If, if we're, I mean, it puts prob- the back on the asker. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, we can go forever. There's a lot of themes in the book, but at the same time, I don't want to sort of rob people their chance of actually getting the book and reading it. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. I've got my copy and I'm loving it, learning quite a whole lot of things. And I want to appreciate you, Prof, for taking the time to write this book. Let me tell you I, what never gets old. Uh-huh. Seeing somebody else hold their book, my book in their hands. That right. never, ever gets old. Because <laughs> I'm like, it's almost like, wait, that's my book. Why are you holding my book? I'm like, oh, wait, because it is a book. It, <laughs> I went to a coffee shop one day and people walked in with my book and I was like, Looking like, is it, did you do they know? Do they know you? It, it never gets old. It never gets old. <laughs> <laughs> but do they, do they know you? Do they see that it was you? You are the, the author when we were working in? Right. So they were, yes. So they were coming, they were coming to talk to me. I was just like, ah, oh my God. Right. Oh, and they had like all kind of like notes and stuff. And I was like, oh my God. I'm like, okay. <laughs> like they were ready. But I mean, it was, the reception has been wonderful. I mean, people have really enjoyed the book. That's amazing. They, they will. And and listeners of the Visions and Tones podcast, please try by all means to get the book. It's amazing. You'll love it. Prof, I got mine from Amazon. Are there any other platforms where people can get access to the book, especially those who are also outside of the States? Um, I'm not sure about outside the States. I think Amazon might be your best bet. I do know that you can, you can go directly to Cambridge University Press, their mm-hmm. website, and buy it there. Just type in the Love Jones cohort, Cambridge University Press, and you'll find the link there. Depending on where you are in the country and the world, it might take a little longer, but um, it's well worth the wait. And you might want to try independent Black-owned bookstores because I do try to support Black as much as I can. I know in the States you can get it, but I'm not sure about like overseas with independent um, Black bookstores. Oh, amazing. Dr. Chris Marsh, thank you so much, ma'am. It's been lovely having a chat with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for having me. It was lovely to be with you. Thank you. That was Dr. Chris Marsh, listeners of the Visions and Tones podcast. Um, Hope you enjoy this conversation. And I'm very much trusting that you'll try to get the book into your hands. Thank you so much for choosing us. Go ye and be best human beings, best versions of yourselves. And we are out. Cheers. This is the Visions and Tones podcast with Dr. T.